What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. It is a Midnight Myth Halloween extravaganza. Here we are. It is nearly Halloween, few days away, 2023. The veil between the living and the dead is thin. The spirits are rustling. Everyone's feeling a little spooky. They're feeling like donning a costume. They're feeling like having some candy and staying up late. And we decided we wanted to do a Midnight Myth episode. Want to give a big, big special shout out to our friends at Geek Salad, who invited us on to review The Exorcist. That's on YouTube. If you want to see us chat with Geek Salad and nerd out about The Exorcist, please find their YouTube channel. And while you're at it, just listen to their show because that's a phenomenal podcast where they talk about all things geek. That being stated, what are Laurel and I going to be talking about today with this Midnight Myth? No, my friends, this is not a Midnight Myth meditation. This is a full Midnight Myth episode, something that we haven't done for a while. And while I'm on the subject, I just want to say why we're doing these meditations in case you're like, where's my big thick, rich Midnight Myth episode. Laurel and I are very busy. We have lots of podcasts. I opened a business. Laurel got promoted twice in the last two years, maybe three times in the last two years in your day job. I don't know how many, how many? A few hundred times. Laurel wrote a book and we just wanted to do more Midnight Myth content and we thought that the meditations were a way we could be publishing more podcasts when we don't have time to research prepare and execute a full Midnight Myth episode. So that's why we're doing it. That being stated, we're doing this Midnight Myth episode. I have no idea if anybody wants this episode. I have no idea if anyone is talking about what we want to talk about tonight, but we wanted to talk about it and that's why we're doing it. So we are going to talk about a Netflix original TV series that just came out. It was produced, directed, inspired by, showrunnered. There's so many terms these days for people making shows by one of the modern horror masters, Mr. Mike Flanagan. You may know him from being the showrunner of House Haunted House on a Hill, House on a Hill. The, the Haunting of Hill House. The Haunting of Hill House, Blythe Manor, Midnight Mass, probably forgetting a few really awesome shows that he has done. He directed the uh, Stephen King adapted Dr. Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. And he came out, I didn't even hear about it. I don't know how you heard about it, Laurel, because you recommended it. Maybe it was the Netflix algorithm. Maybe someone told you. And this new show called The Fall of the House of Usher. And Laurel and I were amidst watching our Philadelphia Phillies go down in flames in the playoffs. We were amidst a whole bunch of other shows that we are watching, like Loki, Welcome to Wrexham, The Great British Baking Show was back, and somehow we put all shows on hold, watched every Phillies game, and still found a way to binge The Fall of House of Usher. I think it's safe to say that we enjoyed it, so much so that we wanted to do a Midnight Myth episode on Mike Flanagan's 2023 The Fall of the House of Usher. 
Yeah, we were watching the fall of the House of Harper on one screen and then the fall of the House of Usher on the other. So, Oh, I think so. In case you're not a Phillies fan, and if you're listening to The Midnight Myth, you may not be a big sports fan. Bryce Harper is our superstar who absolutely let us down. And so we are not in the World Series, which, by the way, first game of the World Series is happening tonight. And how lucky for you, Midnight Myth listeners, that the Phillies lost so we could do an episode. Yep, we actually had time to do this, and we don't have to go to bed at 11.30 every single night. So there's your silver lining. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited to talk about it. It was something that I genuinely enjoyed. But before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, my thing is just that we would love to hear from you. So please check us out on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook, and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com, where you can find information about all three of our shows, The Midnight Myth, The Wheel of Ka, and Sleep and Sorcery. We also have a newsletter you can sign up for there to stay in touch with all of our upcoming episodes for all three of those shows. Uh, Wheel of Ka is Derek and Steve's Stephen King podcast. They will be uploading an episode on misery in the near future, so read along with Derek and Steve if you want to get miserable. And then check me out on Sleep and Sorcery, Weekly, uh, I do a series of sleep stories, sleep-inducing meditations inspired by folklore and fantasy. So definitely check that out if you have insomnia and you need some help falling asleep at night. And also consider pre-ordering my book of the same name, Sleep and Sorcery, which is available now and is coming out next August. Boom, baby. So much of your thing. And one more plug for our conversation with Geek Salad the other night. So definitely check out our conversation, our retro movie review of The Exorcist. It was so, so much fun chatting with Mike and Andy about the classic The Exorcist. We talked about Mesopotamian mythology. We talked about the aspects of the movie that hold up really well and those that make us, you know, turn our head a little bit sideways in the the modern era. So really wonderful conversation. And I admit that I had sworn up and down, I believed in my heart that I had seen The Exorcist until Laurel and I sat down and watched it. And then I realized like, huh, that's weird. I don't remember that. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, the, the woman is an actor whose kid gets possessed by the demon? And Laurel paused the movie and looked at me and she goes, have you seen this movie before? And I'm like, actually, I don't think I have. And I thought I had. Which honestly made it so much more fun to watch it with a first timer. So yes, absolutely check that out on Geek Salad Radio. Awesome. On with the Midnight Myth show. Briefest of brief recaps. I mean, this is a, was it nine episode? I think eight. Eight episode Netflix, like one shot horror special. I don't think there's going to be any more seasons of it. I think it's just a one contained season. Spoiler wall is up. If you haven't seen it yet, pause, watch all eight episodes and come back. It just came out and it's about literally the fall of the house of Usher. It's inspired by the works of Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote a short story, The Fall of the House of Usher. And it is about the Usher family. And the story is not told linearly. It's linearly, did I, did I flub that? No, that's right. Okay, good. It's not told chronologically. And it starts with all of the children of this famous billionaire rich family who created pharmaceuticals with all of the children being dead. The uh, uh, leader of the family, Mr. Usher, is under trial because he produced opioids that has caused the opioid epidemic, and a lawyer is trying to hold him accountable for all of the corporate, moral, and legal malfeasance. He ends up calling up the lawyer after he buries his last of his children and says, I will confess, and he takes the lawyer into this dilapidated old house, and he starts his confession. His confession is to tell Two stories simultaneously. One is the death of each and every single one of his children and how those deaths are ultimately his fault. Each one is spooky and scary. And there seems to be this uh, attractive woman who is orchestrating or perpetuating these horrific deaths. These are deaths like burned alive by acid, uh, crushed to death after a pendulum cuts you in half, beaten by uh, with an ape with her bare hands, Meanwhile, we tell the story of the young ushers growing up in a strict Catholic family that had no father and how the mother of the ushers goes insane and the kids get institutionalized, learning that her mother's uh, lover 
was the owner of a pharmaceutical company and both the two Usher uh, siblings, I'm uh, forgetting their first names right now. Madeline and Roderick. Madeline and Roderick, thank you, keeping me honest here. You're so much better at that than me. <laughs> Vow on taking over the company in which they do by murdering the new CEO, burying him alive in the building with bricks. They then go to a bar on New Year's Eve, which they want to use as cover for their murder, where they meet this same woman who offers them a deal saying that they will have everything they want. They will be completely free of all legal consequences, but all their children will die. Roderick immediately accepts. And then we see each murder, which is perpetrated by this evil spirit, the devil, whoever this is. At the end, we learn that Roderick is mutilated, his uh, sister Madeline, to try to turn her into a mummy as a latch-ditch effort to sacrifice her to the spirit to maybe save himself. Madeline, while half dead, half alive, strangles him to death. And thus, the house of Usher has fallen. And literally falls there at the end. So it's the metaphorical fall of the family lineage, but also the crumbling of the house until it is only splinters. So normally this is a segment where we would ask, does it hold up? This came out in 2023. So I don't think that's a fair question. I would like them to ask you a question, two parts. One, we're big fans of Mike Flanagan. How do you think Mike Flanagan has evolved as a horror storyteller, in particular in the streaming medium? Because that seems to be where he does his most. He has done movies. Um, he has done like theatrical releases like Dr. Sleep. But most of what he has done has been streaming. So how do you think this compares to his other work. Has he learned anything as a storyteller? Has he changed? Recognizing that, of course, it's a collaborative medium. And then secondly, just tell me what you thought of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a great question. Mike Flanagan is definitely a, a one to watch as we move into the next era of cinema, right? I think he is a really interesting voice who carries something very classic but also is evolving horror at the same time. He, his work feels familiar, it feels gothic, it feels connected to the veins of horror that run through the very beginnings of the genre, and he is super tapped into influences like Edgar Allan Poe, like Stephen King, like Mary Shelley, and so many of the, the classic horror writers that we imagine from the last you know, 100, 150 years. So I think he he's a really interesting case where we're getting this kind of revival of gothic horror throughout everything that he creates, but then we're also seeing it from a very modern perspective, and he's able to find new connections and new ways of reframe, reframing familiar material. So you know the the anthologies that he's created for Netflix, the installments that he's done. We've got you talked about Haunting of Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass and now um, followed the House of Usher. He's also got a show called The Midnight Club that we have not seen, and then a handful of movies, some of which we've seen, some of which we haven't. And I genuinely think he he gets stronger with, with each outing. I have a ton of love and affection for both Bly Manor and Midnight Mass. I think at the end of the day where the chips fall, Midnight Mass is probably gonna still be my favorite of the pieces, but I can't say that for sure. I also just love Edgar Allan Poe, so I was deeply, deeply drawn to this one. But I think he's growing a little bit more sophisticated in terms of how he handles um, the balance of emotion and sentiment and character-driven work with horror and jump scare. I think he is he's definitely growing in that respect. I, I love all of that. I'd like to add a few things if that's cool. Yeah. Or were you done? Were you not done? No, 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 go ahead. Okay, yeah, I didn't want to cut you off there because you were on fire. A lot of his previous things that we have seen, there's a few we haven't. We're going to see it all when we can. Like I said, we're busy. We're very busy people. But he's played around with nonlinear storytelling in just about everything. This was the first one that was three different timelines happening simultaneously. And the thing that I thought he evolved in his prowess as a storyteller was that's really hard to do in the streaming television movie genres because it can give you a sense of narrative whiplash where you're like, whip from here, whip from there, back to here. Think of It Chapter 2. 
right? The, the, the recent adaptation. It didn't balance that well. You spent too much time in one time, not enough time in the other. This was a really balanced story that allowed many scenes time to like breathe and be their own while also taking us through different periods of time. And at no point was the end result revealed. We were constantly guessing what's going to happen next in all three parallel stories chronologically. So there's the story of Roderick with the attorney, um, the attorney general, and who's going to win this, this exchange of words, right? Then there's the story of the young ushers and their fault, their, their ascent into power. Who's going to win that? And then there's the story of the haunting and the death of the children. And all three of those stories happening in different timelines simultaneously, I thought he balanced that really well. So I never felt lost or confused. I never felt overwhelmed. I never felt like, okay, what timeline am I in here? And I thought he did a really, really good job with that. And to me, I got to give him major props and major step forwards in his ability to execute a way more complicated story than some of the other ones. Not saying the other ones are simple. I'm just talking about the pure mechanics of it. You know, three different stories and three different timelines happening at once over eight episodes can't be easy to juggle. We've seen shows try to do that before and fall like later seasons of lost, for example, not be able to tell all of these complicated stories. And I, so for me, I feel like there was a major step forward in what this guy can do. And it felt like he was really confident and the whole people, all the people working on it were really confident that they could pull this story off. Like we've done so many great things. We're going to nail this one. And there's a rumor out there that Mike Flanagan might be taking on a Stephen King adaptation of a story that's completely nonlinear where the chronology is so messed up that time doesn't even work right called The Dark Tower. And it makes me really excited to see if he can actually get the adaptation of The Dark Tower done because this is just like, okay, this is kind of Dark Tower-esque storytelling. A story starts, it stops, it goes backwards, it starts, it goes backwards again, then it goes forwards, and he was able to do that, which got me really excited for the potential of him to do a Dark Tower. That is such a good point. And not only does he execute it well, but it's not frustrating, right? There is, it teeters just on the edge of making you like, oh, you almost gave me what I wanted with that one storyline, but then we jumped over to the other one and it makes you really, really want more. But that's just a, a thread to keep you binging. It doesn't make you angry. It doesn't just feel like you're coming up against brick walls, no pun intended. It feels like, something that pulls you through the narrative and does so in a really excellent way. You know, if we want to talk about just technical mastery and craft here too, just the creativity with which it rearranged and reassembled the Edgar Allan Poe references, I think is worth so much applause because this is called The Fall of the House of Usher, but The Fall of the House of Usher, the short story by Edgar Allan Poe, is really just the frame narrative for this. The only things that really resemble it within the story are Roderick and Madeline, the crumbling house, the storm, and then the uh, climactic episode with Roderick and Madeline taking each other out at the end of their life because Roderick has entombed Madeline before she is actually dead. So that's really all the resemblance that it, it pays to it. However, among other things, the referenced stories and poems of Edgar Allan Poe that I caught, at least, are The Mask of the Red Death, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Black Cat, The Telltale Heart, The Gold Bug, The Pit and the Pendulum, The Raven, The Cask of Amontillado, Annabelle Lee, Morella, A City in the Sea, Lenore, Tamerlane, Legia, Politan, Spirits of the Dead, The Premature Burial, The Spectacles, The Journal of Julius Rodman, and The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. I'm certain there are more that I didn't catch, but those were, the, that's the volume of stories and poems that were interlaced. Not, not The Raven? I mean. I said The Raven, didn't I? 
Did I miss it? I did not hear you say the raven. Oh, well, definitely the raven. Okay. Yeah, it's like, hold on. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, I didn't hear you say the bells. There were a lot of bells in this. Hey, yeah. No, I was thinking about the bells, yeah, and there, I, was, there, I was actually trying to remember if there was a reference to the bells, so I'm glad that you called that out. There's tons of bells all over this, yeah. So You're like, totally right. Yeah, so a lot of bells, a lot of ringing things. Yeah, and, yeah. oh, the bells is such a cool poem. Um, and then there's also real-world references to Edgar Allan Poe's biography, so... Uh, the Usher's twin's mother is named Eliza, and Eliza Poe was uh, Edgar's mother, and she tragically died when he was very young, and he was sent off to live with another family, the Allens, hence Edgar Allan Poe. And then Rufus Griswold, who is the CEO of Fortunato, who gets bricked up in the basement, a la Casca of Amontillado, his name is taken from Poe's literary rival, Rufus Wil Wilmot Griswold, who is the guy who ended up writing Poe's obituary after he died under a pseudonym, and it was a total piece of slander. He wrote an obituary for Poe that was full of all kinds of lies about him being this raving lunatic madman who just runs the streets muttering crazy things. And, really? Yeah, and it was later revealed that it was him. And then somehow, this is wild, Rufus Griswold becomes the executor of Poe's literary estate so he gets his hands on all of Poe's literary works and does everything he can to try and destroy Poe's reputation after his death. Crazy, wow. right? <laughs> wow. I mean, Poe is an incredible character, uh, you know, an incredible historical figure uh, for a number of reasons. And I would love to just digress briefly and talk about him because... I mean, I feel like we're, we're, we're bridging the gap into the analysis piece and just... I want you to give me your segment. I can see you took a lot of notes here, so I see your notes. Um, I would just like to say one more thing yeah. about, before we get to the deep midnight myth level analysis, um, and we will start with your Edgar Allan Poe research, but before we do that, I just really wanna know, um, tell me how you liked the show, what you thought about it, like, did you think this was, obviously I think we thought it was successful. We wouldn't be midnight mything about it, but I'd love for you to just like extrapolate some high level themes before we get really deep into it. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say I, I really loved it. I was, like I said, really pulled along and, and felt very buoyed by the narrative. I think there was incredibly strong script writing in this. Something that you and I commented on multiple times was the amount of soliloquies and monologues that make their way into this, which in you know less talented or less careful hands can become really sophomoric or can feel overindulgent. And yet in this show, it, it always felt very successful because it's artfully done, it's often cut well, and when it actually lingers on a character telling a very long story or anecdote or, or uh, lesson, it's super impactful. So I thought there was really strong writing. I think the casting is wonderful as well. Uh, Mike Flanagan definitely has an ensemble that he likes to pull from. Kate Siegel, who is his partner, ends up being a, a major character in everything that he does, and she's a really talented actor. But I think my favorite performance in this is probably Mary McDonald as Madeline. Uh, it's so great to see her again. She's just such a gifted actress. And she pulls off so much with Madeline that leaves so much mystery and is just really compelling to watch. The younger actor who also plays Madeline, I don't know her name, but I thought she she was wonderful and the two of them really felt complimentary to me. Um, th those are just some things that I'll call out that I, I really loved. Yeah, so many of these scenes <clears throat> boiled down to two people in a room talking and one person asserting their dominance through a speech or a monologue. And that, as you mentioned, in less skilled hands, both in writer and both in actor and all of the actors, um, would be really preachy. It would be really lame. There was like a, an episode, I forget which one, where we counted like four scenes with two people talking where one person monologues to the other one about something. And they were amazing. It was the one where... Um, Roderick talks about lemonades. Yes. And he goes in that monologue. Then his daughter, um, 
Camille. Camille. She does like the, the PR pitch. She does the PR pitch. Oh God, there was like another one in there. I'm blanking. Rufus that. Griswold has a has a monologue, I think, in the same episode. And then there's one more, right? Yeah, there's four monologues in it. And like, and, and I'm looking at this and marveling because as, as I'm chewing this up, I'm like, this should be bad writing, right? Like you can't do in a 45 hour long minute show, four characters give a speech to another character because so much of the show is two characters in a room talking to each other and one giving a speech that the other one gets blown away by. And like, and yet somehow it just worked because this, this show balances the thread of being something incredibly new and innovative and hearkening back to things that we'd seen. It, it gives monologues like in a Shakespearean way. It's just like I'm watching really phenomenal writing, so much so that I'm wrapped up in this person's speech, and they, they lay in, in the way that Shakespeare too, where everything is laid right on the table. There is nothing being hidden. There's very little under the surface. There are very little things that we don't know about these characters right away, and they are speaking their mind. This is what I am, and this is who I am. Make no mistake about it. Don't read it any other way. And it was still so smart and innovative and fresh. And never did those monologues feel like it was dragging the narrative momentum. Each one felt like a moment where a character was going forward. Whether a character like young Roderick needs to listen to a mentor that he would ultimately kill and overthrow in the way that Zeus overthrows Kronos. You know, like whether it, it is I've got to learn from this person or whether it's I'm going to tell you why you're terrible when Roderick gives a monologue to his young wife who's addicted to pain medicine and that she can't get off it. But if she tried, this is actually what you'd have to do knowing full well that he has made billions selling poison to everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me, everyone. So I thought all of that was really great. And I just think it's worth touching before we get deep into the analysis portion, the analysis portion, pardon me, about how this is essentially a deal with the devil. So Laurel and I have been debating whether they never name the character, right? They don't explicitly say her name in the show, but she is billed as Verna. That is her name. Got it. So we had this debate whether she is or is not the devil. And we went around it every kind of way. And by the way, Laurel and I have a very healthy and productive and, and happy marriage. But man, when we're debating an interpretation of a piece of artwork, in particular, if we're going to podcast about it and we don't see eye to eye, eye they can get really heated. <laughs> and this one got a little heated. Just a little bit. And now that we're recording, it seems so silly because both of our interpretations are valid. I still think like the biggest argument we've ever been in was about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Which... Oh, we had we had some knives out on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> Let me just dredge that one up. <laughs> we're trying to get through this with a marriage, Laurel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you bring that up? I don't know. <laughs> no, we've come to agree on Buffy. It took it took a long time, but we've come to agree. It's a masterpiece. And yes, we love it. thank you. Yes. Great. Yes, we love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, you know, bad fight choreography and all. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Oh man, she's giving me the meanest look. I, I think it's worth having this conversation about who this character is before we open up full analysis. Because if anything, that what this show is, it's not subtle, is these two characters make a deal with the quote-unquote devil to be unpacked later. And that deal is, will I can have your children and you can have your business empire and you can break whatever law you want, you will never get caught. And they instantly agree without thinking about it. And as time progresses, they forget really that this deal happened and they come to believe that they earned their empire. It wasn't given to them by this evil quote unquote devil. And they've come to regret this decision in particular Roderick because of all of his faults and all of his awfulness. And as much as this man does need to be brought down, there is a genuine love for his children as much as he's a terrible father. Cause he is a terrible father. There's a part of him that's just like, I did all of this and now my kids are dead and I actually did love my children. And 
and in many ways, the way that he loves his bastards, quote unquote bastards, a terrible word. I don't like it, but that's the word that we have. And how he brings them into the fold is very unique in this scenario because in a lot of these stories, the quote unquote illegitimate children, children born out of wedlock, are not given a seat at the table. And the way he gives them a seat at the table to make sure that they're included, they feel welcomed and loved, is one of the, well, I won't say loved, feel welcomed and given lots of money. That's his version of loved because he doesn't love his children in any healthy, constructive way. It's one of his most redeeming characteristics. And then watching them die is when he realizes the whole thing needs to become crumbling down. And it's because of that deal. So let's have the conversation now since we had a warm up. Who is, what, what did you say she was billed as? Verna. Who is Verna? What is Verna? Is Verna the devil? Is Verna not the devil? In how should we interpret this character? Because I do think that's the linchpin to understanding the analysis of the show. So my perspective on this is, yes, we have the workings of a classic Faustian bargain. You appear at a crossroads and the devil meets you there and you sell your soul for a great talent or great wealth or great power. And this is a myth theme that we see echo throughout eternity. It's also something that we see in deals with witches, like the foster mother of Rapunzel. So it's certainly uh, a theme that echoes. I don't personally see Verna as Satan or as an incarnation of the Christian devil, primarily because Flanagan's show and Edgar Allan Poe don't ever seem to affirm or ascribe to an explicitly Christian cosmology. I see Verna, and I'll have more to say about her later, but I see her as a kind of unimaginably ancient force who is older than Satan, older than the devil, older than most mythological characters, demons, gods, but is probably the character who inspired them. I almost see her as closer to a cosmic force or one of the great old ones, a Cthulhu-like uh, ancient deity who is an arbiter of vengeance, of death, maybe the angel of death. I think it's very hard to put a label on her, and I think there's a reason the show doesn't explicitly put a label on her. I see her as something that wraps up a deep ambiguity about good and evil and also is driven by an admittedly skewed sense of justice. Interesting. So you say the a deep ambiguity about good and evil. See, I feel like this show's definition of good and evil is a little more binary. The people are complicated. Their motivations are complicated. They're choices are in a vacuum and are not in a vacuum, you know, like they, so like were the children really free at all in this or were they doomed from this deal to suffer? And is that okay? Even when they expose themselves as being immoral or bad or uh, in any stretch of the imagination. So like Camille has sex with her assistants, which is not okay. And then when they admit, say, we don't want to do this anymore, we want to be in a relationship with just us, she fires them immediately. All of the children are pitted against each other, trying to one-up each other. Some of the children seem to be closer to the others, some are not. Um, and so, like, do any of these kids have any choice or free will in this? Probably not. But I do feel like there's a little more binary, less, like, good and evil don't seem so ambiguous in this. Like a, a story where good and evil is ambiguous is like Fight Club. You know, like that that's one where it's just like, who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? Um, is it okay to like beat up your friends and bleed them to a bloody pulp? I, you know, like it's not really sure what that's saying. Like it's left for interpretation. I think this one's saying like selling your children's wrong, selling drugs that you know are poison is wrong, murdering to get ahead, it's wrong. If you do those things, your children will be poisoned, and guess what? You all die young. So I feel like it's like this shows a less ambiguous about good and evil to me. If this is, does that make sense? Yeah, let me just clarify, because I agree with you. I do think the show has a very 
obvious or clear moral stance. I think what I'm trying to say is more that Verna, to me, seems like a holdover from an age where those morals are not so firmly made or there is a, a, a more capacious current running through everything that she does. I think it's significant that every time she encounters one of the kids before the moment of their death, she does give them a choice. Each of them has the option to take a different route that is a little bit more favorable, and they all double down on their wealth, they double down on their privilege, they double down on the horrible things that they are doing. Or pettiness sometimes too. Or pettiness, too. yeah. yeah. And, and that's why they, they fall victim to this. Meanwhile, when she comes to having to kill Lenore, take Lenore's life, because the entire Usher line has to be snuffed out as per the terms of the deal, she does so with a good deal of mercy, and she gives Lenore a good, swift, painless death while also rewarding her with this knowledge of a possible future that comes from her death that is like, you saved millions of people. And so there is, I think, in Verna, a more capacious view of, of good and evil or of the meaning of justice. Do I think it's right what she does? Not necessarily. She does some I, pretty unforgivable things, but I think she's a force bigger than that. Justice is a tough term for me with her. I'm not going to lie. I, I don't think it's justice, but I think like ancient world, like she's an arbiter of executing the terms of the deal. Like that's what's justice to her. That seems so the devil to me. Fair. Right? Like that is so the devil. Hey, this is exactly what this deal says. So this is exactly what you get. Sorry you didn't think it through. And sorry I'm smarter than you. There's a point where, um, oh my God, the sister usher, I wanted to say Madeline. Is it Madeline? Madeline, yeah. Madeline goes, you know, a negotiation is words and the force of will. And if you go into a negotiation of words and a force of will with a force of will greater than yours, you will lose the negotiation. And the ushers lose. And that feels so the devil to me. Whether I, I do think you're 100% correct that this show is not expressly uh, presenting a Christian cosmology. It's not at all a religious show. It is a secular show, you know, but I just think that character is drawn from the Christian cosmology more so than anything else. Even if the intention is it's not necessarily the Satan, interpret it as you want. It is drawing from the archetypes of what we know of Satan from the Bible and how Satan then has been then described to others uh, in stories and, and tales, hence from that. So like, to me, I feel like, whether it's literally the devil or not, that's how Satan is written and described and is operating in that way. In, a, in, in the Old Testament, whether Satan is the devil is, is debatable. In Christianity, it comes up, is Satan just another um, uh, angel, etc.? So in the Old Testament, it's not very clear who Satan is, whereas in the New Testament, it's like, nope, there's God. And then there's this other thing called the devil who is fighting God at all costs. So like whether like it's not adopting a religious moral, you know, like it, it's really, it really is a secular tale told for secular people, but is pumped and infused with this. Hey, if you walk into a deal and someone says you get everything you want, but the consequences, your children are going to die. How many of us would sign yes? And the, the reflection, the meditation that we should take from this is too many people would. Too many people would be the ushers if they could be. Too many people are hardened and are bitter and look at life transactionally and look at it as a zero-sum game where they want to take everything from everyone at all costs to enrich themselves no matter what. And so in that way, it's a very secular moral. It's telling us Americans, like, there's a reason we built a system where it was completely legal for people to sell synthetic heroin to the entire country and have relatively escaped all consequences of that. There's a reason why they're researching who she is. They are pulling out 
pictures of her next to all of these influential and powerful Americans. There's a reason that when she is giving Madeline clarity in the poem that she says, she says, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember, all of the thrones come from hell. All of the power of this world comes from hell. In that she has been propping up these human civilizations to make sure that they fall, to make sure that there is suffering in the world. And if you're, if what you have done is orchestrate suffering in the world, there's only one cosmology that says that comes from one force. That's Christianity, and that's Satan and the devil. Now, I agree that this is a secular show. I think it should be taken more as a metaphor. It's like, hey, would we all sell our children to be a little richer? And if the answer to that is maybe, you're an usher. You know, and so I think it, it should be interpreted more metaphorically rather than literally. I don't think it matters if she's literally the devil or not, but I do think it takes that story of selling your soul to the devil and adapts it to our current modern climate in a way that I thought was beautiful. And for Mike Flanagan, making a broader societal critique that is both subtle and slaps you over the face at the same time, which is what horror can do. It can be subtle and slap you over the face at the same time, which I thought was brilliant. So I tend to interpret it, it's the devil, but not but but it doesn't matter. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and I think that you make a really good argument and it's it's hard to disagree with the motif and the the language that's there. So I, I think I think we both make a good case. I, I think your argument is for, like I, I think ultimately this is not a Christian story. Right. This is an American story. And it's saying, America, have you sold your soul to the devil? Like look at the system you built. It allows for this to happen. And so I think that is where I take take away from it. Um, this was supposed to be the light segment and not the analysis segment, but it got pretty heavy and we did a lot of analysis in it. So you have a lot to say about Edgar Allan Poe and I cut you off from talking about it 25 minutes ago. I don't know, I'm not counting the time right now. So please, this show is so inspired by Edgar Allan Poe I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I will have a little bit more to say about Verna later when I talk about something else, but I think that was a really um, excellent, excellent diversion um, and, and an important conversation for us to have. So yeah, I really just wanted to talk about Poe because I'm a bit of a fangirl and because we don't talk about him enough on this podcast for how deeply influential that he was. I think the last time we talked about Poe was when we did our episode on The Shining because The Mask of the Red Death is such an important influence on the book, The Shining, and then thereby the movie as well. But Poe is obviously regarded as the undisputed godfather of gloom, right? When you think of him, you think of him being a pioneering horror writer. But much like our, our today horror master Stephen King, he is so, so much more than that. And because of that prevailing reputation, it's really easy to overlook how influential Poe was in other genres and spaces, and as just a leading literary voice, especially in America. He's not only this great voice in horror, and gothic horror in particular, but he's also the inventor of detective fiction. See Auguste Dupin, who is the uh, one of the point of view characters in this story, who is the Attorney General, he's also the Medicare fraud investigator earlier in his career, who is the foil for Roderick Usher, is Poe's great detective, who was introduced, I believe, in Murders in the Rue Morgue, and then he's in The Purloined Letter and another story. And Dupin used this process he called ratiocination, which was essentially deductive reasoning by noticing details that most people overlook. There is no Sherlock Holmes without... C.A. Dupin. There is no detective fiction without Edgar Allan Poe. I did not know that, and that blew my mind. Doesn't it just blow your mind? So he was also a gifted satire writer, a poet. Not all of his poems are deeply gloomy and dread-inspiring, but many of them are. And he introduced things like ciphers and cryptograms into writing. So The Gold Bug is a story where he actually employs 
a, a cryptogram that a character has to solve. So without Poe, there's no Treasure Island. There's no Ready Player One well in the future. So he is someone who introduced so many new conventions to different genres. And then during his life, Poe was also well known as a literary critic and a literary theorist. Big fun fact, Poe was the first American writer to make a living by writing alone. Didn't have to have a day job. So he was able to actually pay the bills and he had success in his lifetime. Horribly tragic life and very interesting life. Married his 13-year-old cousin when he was 27 years old and she died three years later of tuberculosis. So many of his poems and stories deal with the death of a beautiful woman, Annabelle Lee, and so on and so forth. The Raven with Lenore. Lenore, yeah. yeah. So there's the Raven and then there's also a poem called Lenore that both deal with a bereaved husband who is grieving for this beautiful woman taken too soon. But so many of his stories harp on that theme. Other themes that we see, premature burial or being buried alive, something that comes up a lot in this show, comes up in the fall of the House of Usher, the story. We see plague, pestilence come up a lot. Um, gothic settings like ruined castles and crumbling houses and place and space being imbued with a sense of sentience or evil or foreboding or an atmosphere of gloom. We also get addiction, madness, guilt driving people mad. These are things that come up time and time again in Poe and are handled in really magnificent and atmospheric ways and have seeped into the genre in ways that are completely undeniable. So when you watch The Fall of the House of Usher, you can see so many of these themes come back again and again. You see multiple instances of being buried alive or something that approximates that. You see multiple instances of guilt driving people so mad that they tear apart their home or they kill their loved ones. You see multiple in instances of substance abuse making people make horrible decisions and so on and so forth. I love that. Yeah, thank you for doing all that research and, and work to bring that to the podcast. You know, when I was in, you know, middle school, high school, I did not engage with most material that was presented to me. I was not a good student at that time. I was not a good kid at that time. I was dealing with a lot of stuff that made me really angry at whatever institutional knowledge was coming my way. I wanted to go my own way. And I looked at the teachers in the schools as enemies that I needed to fight, which was really dumb. And that's the reason is because I, I have learning disabilities, you know? And so I was trying to overcome those or compensate. I should say those learning disabilities by saying like, I don't need school. And then I was introduced to Edgar Allan Poe and I'm like, no, that's awesome. Yeah. You're a goth kid. You're no, just that's like, cool. Yeah, yeah. Just give me that. Give me more. Yeah. No, that that's the good stuff right there. Like, okay. Yeah. I, I like doing that, but I never really delved too deep into it because that was something that, you know, you read the big Edgar Allan Poe things, the telltale heart, the bells, the Raven, you know, you read those while you're in from like, you know, seventh to like 10th grade. I think that's when that happened. And then you, you love it and then you move on. And it's just really cool to know that full context and how not pigeonholed Poe was. And I like that Mike Flanagan is sort of in that same vein. He clearly is a horror guy, but so there are so many different little genres that exist within his stories, in particular in The, the Fall of House of Usher. There's mystery, there's intrigue, you know, there's, there's a little bit of action. So there's all these other types of genres that are bubbling up. There's drama, there's romance, um, there's obsession, all of these things that Poe had. So thank you for preparing all that. Yeah, and just one last interesting thing about Poe, other than his insanely mysterious death uh, and premature death, is that he was from Philly. Um, and by from Philly, I mean, there are multiple American cities that claim him. Baltimore, Richmond, and Philadelphia being the, the three big ones. He moved around a lot, but there are multiple residences associated with Poe still in the city limits of Philadelphia. One of them is the um, Edgar Allan Poe historical site. So he had deep ties to this part of the country. So anytime you see a raven in Philadelphia, that's, that's his spirit watching over us. Awesome. I did not know that either. Yeah. No idea. Yeah. 
I've been living in this area, you know, only my whole life. We should go to the Poe House let's, for Halloween. Let's go to the Poe House for Halloween. I absolutely love that. Can I talk about Egypt? Yes, there's just a little bit of Egyptian imagery in this show. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of ancient Egypt in this. And as the like midnight myth resident ancient historian who gets the opportunity to talk about ancient Egypt so infrequently, I really want to bring it up because it's not like Rome. All roads lead to Rome. I can almost always link something to ancient Rome. Rarely can I link things to ancient Egypt. This is not to say there haven't been things that could be linked to ancient Egypt. We have one of my favorite episodes we ever did was with the mummy with M from Verbal Diorama where we talked about the whole time ancient Egypt. But I want to bring in some things that I might have talked about before in that episode, but I think are relevant here. So of all of the ancient world metaphors that these characters, the ushers, could have connected with, why is ancient Egypt the one they picked? And I would argue the perfect fit. So a few things about ancient Egypt that should be said that, that I will relate them back to the ushers, if that's cool with you. Yeah, please. Ancient Egypt was a very um, hierarchical society. At the top was the pharaoh, and then underneath the pharaoh were all of the priests and all of the then craftsmen that helped monumentalize, then all of the people who had to do all of the work. It was very stratified. So it is literally a pyramid. And this feels very at home with the ushers who view themselves at the top of society and everything and anyone else underneath them. One of the things that the ancient Egypt's, Egyptians believed is that you could take it with you. They believed that the material world and the spirit world literally overlapped. And if proper rituals were completed, you could take your physical possessions into the spirit world. That's one of the reasons why ancient Egyptian tombs are so complicated, why they had pyramids. They built fortresses to bury the pharaohs because with the pharaoh were all of the worldly goods they owned. So how did that work? When you died and you were a prominent Egyptian, you would be mummified. The purpose of mummification was to purify all of the things in the body that would make the flesh rot so that the flesh would not rot. So when it came time for you to go to the underworld, you could your physical body could rise again and walk into the underworld. You would be buried in these elaborate tombs with all of the things you wanted and you would take them with you. So that way you could go into the underworld with all of your physical possessions. I think this is why when uh, Verona looks at, uh, I keep blanking on her name. Madeline. Madeline. She calls her the Cleopatra. Cleopatra is the last Egyptian pharaoh. I think that signifies the end of an old way and the beginning of a new way. When Cleopatra falls, so does ancient Egypt fall. And ancient Egypt then gets absolved or gets uh, absorbed, pardon me, into Rome. So, I feel like calling her Cleopatra is saying this is actually the true leader of the ushers was her and she will be the last of the ushers that this is the end of this empire and a new empire will be birthed out of it. And so what would happen? You would die. You'd be mummified. They would take out all of your organs. They would wrap your body. They put you in a tomb along the tomb would be enshrined spells these are the spells, it's called the Egyptian Book of the Dead, that would help get the god Horus to come to you. And then Horus would come to you and resurrect your body and then would bring you into the underworld. And then there are a whole bunch of steps to make sure that you get to the next part of the underworld. There would be a confession. However, it's not what you think of when you think of the Catholic version of confession. It's what's called a reverse confession. So the reverse confession is where you would state all of the things you had not done wrong. Not all of the things you had done right, but not all of the things that you had done wrong, but all the things you had not done. So I have not done murder against my family. No, I have not stolen a kid's lunch money. I have, yes. I have not uh, 
punch someone in the face, etc. So you would have this reverse confession who would be written down by the god Isis, or I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, the god Thoth. I'm very tired right now, so pardon me if I made a mistake there. Then the heart, so all of the important organs when they would be removed would be put in jars. They're called canoptic jars. If you ever go to any um, museum that has a lot of ancient Egyptian relics, such as the um, Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology in the University of Pennsylvania, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, we've been to the British Museum of London, you can see these jars. And so these are jars, and they're usually carved. Um, there's just one part of the bottom, and the top's usually an animal. So the organs would be removed, and they would be put in these jars for you to take them to the underworld in case you needed them. But one was in particularly important was the heart. The heart would be weighed next to the weight of a feather. And should your heart be heavier than the feather, it would be indicative that your reverse confession, you weren't necessarily forthright with it. And you would not get to the next phase in which the, the god animal Amit would devour you. And that would be the end of you. So all of, of this is to say there were very specific rituals that you had to do in the exact order. They were replicated for thousands of years. And if done correctly, you as a dead person could eventually make your way through to the afterlife, and there you would get to live forever in bliss and harmony. So ancient Egypt is some of the most ancient history that there is. It's one of the oldest civilizations that had ever existed. And thus the will to power and dominate those beneath you is as ancient as ancient Egypt. The desire for the powerful to live forever and their desire to bring the material goods with them from the, the material to the spiritual plane is very real. And I think that's the metaphor, that is the interpretation of the ushers. Here are people that would sell their, immortal, their immortal soul for a chance at fame and fortune and still think they can somehow live for forever. And then if they can live for forever, that their power and wealth will live for forever. Roderick's, one of the subplots with Roderick is that his heart's going and his brain's going. Is that he is physically dying and he is trying to use his company to extend his natural lifespan. He's trying to use this power and privilege to gain some semblance of immortality. Because at the end of the day, none of these characters can confront their impermanent nature. Now, in ancient Egypt, all of these rituals were important to continue the cycle of life so that life would be reborn. I don't know if that's exactly what the show's going for. So, for example, if you're an Egyptian pharaoh, while you were living, you were the god Horus on Earth. You were believed to be the god, and your function as pharaoh to operate as that god to mitigate justice is the very force that would allow the farming to happen or the building to happen, for civilization to happen. And then when you die and you go through all of these rituals, then you become Osiris in death. And Osiris is the god of mummification, the god of the underworld. And thus the cycle repeats with every pharaoh. I don't, I get the sense that there's some cyclical nature to this, but that it's like necessary for society to function, I don't get from this. From, um, from the fall of House of Usher. I don't think the fall of House of Usher is saying this cycle is necessary. But what I do get is that the ushers looked at themselves as pharaohs and they didn't look at themselves as pharaohs who are servants of a natural order, but rather pharaohs who could manipulate, dominate, control, and bend these forces to their will. In other words, they're the, the tyrannical pharaoh. And that is why their sacrifices of the children, their sacrifices of their lives and their bodies does not bring them to that promised land. I totally agree with you. Thank you so much for bringing all of that. A couple of things went off in my mind while you were talking. Madeline, we're talking about the pursuit of immortality, meanwhile, is building these AI copies of people to simulate 
immortality. And she does this for Lenore, which ends up going very, very wrong and becomes extremely uncanny. And then Roderick has this obsession with obtaining the sapphire eyes that were mummified with an Egyptian queen, an Egyptian goddess that he then gives to Madeline and imparts to her symbolizing that she is a goddess and that she will live forever. And I also, when you mentioned that Madeline is likened to Cleopatra, the last of the pharaohs, before Egypt is eventually absorbed into Rome, that reminded me of what happens in the epilogue, right? So what happens to the house of Usher? There's no one left in the bloodline, so who inherits everything? Juno, named after the Roman goddess who's associated with the Greek Hera, and then she donates a bunch of this money to a foundation called the Phoenix Foundation. So the House of Usher rises from the ashes as this restorative thing that helps people who were victims of ligodone and the opioid epidemic. So in a way, there is this sense that the death of the Ushers and the fall of the House of Usher actually feeds the flames of the Phoenix rising and feeds the opportunity to create new hope for people who were victims of the usher's greed. I absolutely love that. Yeah, I just absolutely love that. Yeah, when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, wait, but Juno inherits everything. She's named after a Roman goddess. So I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely love it. So lastly, I wanted to talk a little bit about ravens, if that is okay with you. And I think especially because we just talked about immortality and death and burial rituals, I think they are, are definitely connected. And of course, The Raven is arguably Edgar Allan Poe's most famous work. Not, not arguably. Yeah, it's his most famous work. And apart from The House of Usher itself, it is the most frequently referenced work in this series. So we've mentioned the character Verna, the supernatural force taking out the Usher bloodline. Verna is an anagram of Raven. So, yeah, and she appears to shapeshift multiple times in and out of raven form throughout the series, in addition to other forms like cats and chimpanzees. And she watches over the drama like this all-seeing force. And then ravens appear in taxidermied form or in artistic form in other places as well. Today, the first thing that comes to mind when we think of the symbolism of ravens is probably that they're associated with death right? They are ill omens of death or ill fortune or doom. And that is for good reason. Ravens are carrion birds. So that means they're scavengers. They're kind of like vultures. They will feed on something that is already dead. So if you see a raven, it's more than likely that something dead is nearby and they are hunting for it. But the symbolism runs really deep and it's a lot more complex than that throughout many cultures. Early on in the series, I think Verna actually says not every culture viewed ravens as evil or ill omens. I'm paraphrasing. So I'm a birder, and so I have to do a little bit of housekeeping here. Raven is often an umbrella term for a few different species that live within the corvid family. The corvid family also includes crows, it includes jays, rooks, magpies, nutcrackers, etc., Biologically, the birds in this family tend to be among the most intelligent of birds. They are the largest songbirds. And some of those species even demonstrate self-awareness. So they can recognize themselves in mirrors. They can also recognize people after long periods of time. And some of them are possessed of skills that most of us would associate with only humans and higher mammals like primates. So they can use tools, things like that. They can make tools. Yeah, right? So ravens and some other corvids will like take a twig off of a tree and they'll modify it into a kind of hook so that they can fish insects out of a log so they can make and use tools. That's cool. It's crazy. So I can lecture you for hours about the identification of ravens versus crows, but the truth is when we're talking about symbolism, it doesn't actually matter. For much of human history, the identification of raven versus crow is actually interchangeable. They're so closely related that they're essentially considered the same bird. Ravens gain a reputation in a lot of mythological traditions for being psychopomps. So they're guides or mediators between the land of the living and the land of the dead. 
So here comes this association with death, albeit in a much more ambiguous fashion, not necessarily saying, you're gonna die if I appear, but I'm here to usher you along the way. Sorry for the pun, <laughs> the usher pun. Uh, they're also closely tied to wisdom, prophecy, and insight. So think of the two raven companions of the Norse god Odin. Thunin and Mugen. Yes, and they, Hugin is thought and Munin is memory. These are two different sides of insight, and Odin himself is a seeker of wisdom, so it's natural that they would be associated with him. He would send them daily into Midgard to gather news and bring it back to him. There's a similar kind of story in classical Greek mythology wherein Apollo, the god of prophecy, sends a white raven to spy on his lover. When the raven finds out that the lover has been unfaithful to him, Apollo singes the raven so that its feathers all turn black. So that's why ravens are black. Noah, meanwhile, after the flood, sends ravens out to see if the floodwaters have abated. So again, gathering inspiration or gathering insight and wisdom to bring back to people, acting as messengers between worlds. I'm really just skimming the surface. So ravens and crows play significant roles in cultures from all over the world, from Hindu mythology, to the mythologies and cosmologies of indigenous people in the North Americas and Celtic mythology and beyond. Some things that we understand about them today that lend themselves to the mythic and mysterious significance include not only their tool-making ability, but the fact that they observe burial ritual, or at least observe funerary rites for their dead. You may have read about crow funerals. This is when I have not. Yeah, so when a murder of crows comes upon a dead member of their species and they can tell that it's a member of their species versus, you know, a dead sparrow, they will gather either in a circle or in the trees nearby. They will observe a moment of silence and then they will all chatter together before they take off. So there is this clear observance of one of ours has fallen. So that's something that we can have observed from time out of mind that creates this association of them with death, but not in an evil way, in a way that is reverent of the situation of death and a way that they become these mythological mediators. One other thing about corvids that I think is interesting is that many of them are collectors. So uh, magpies, and jays and crows especially will collect objects, often shiny objects, and they will keep a nest of those things. Thinking about that, plus their funerary observations, I'm reminded of Verna in the final scenes of the fall of the House of Usher, visiting the grave sites of all of the ushers as she recites Spirits of the Dead and leaving an artifact or an object that is associated with each usher as this act of memorialization. So she is this figure of prophecy, of insight, that observes this death ritual of them, that is a mediator between the living world and the world of death, that can transcend death herself, and becomes the very embodiment of Poe's demonic raven, who is perched on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. So I kind of love this approximation of her as not just a raven, she's not just a shape-shifting bird, but that is one aspect of this holistic figure of Verna as, as the raven. Drop the mics. Oh, they're on stands. <laughs> what else you got? That is all I got. I love the show. I love the show too. Well, until next time, happy Halloween and be kind. Nevermore. Nevermore.